Good morning, everybody. This summer, nope. There we go. Uh, this summer, uh, we're going to explore what it means to, uh, or we're going to explore the question of what it means uh, to grow in our faith. And at some time in our lives, we all face issues that make us wonder: uh, Is my faith strong enough to handle this situation? Do I really believe that God is good enough? To, to help me through my difficult circumstances? Will my faith hold up when I'm desperate or doubtful? Or what might it look like to strengthen and deepen my faith in God and trust in his uh, promises? In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And as we seek to grow in our faith, we're not just seeking to grow in our ability to wish for things to happen or, or uh, our ability or our willingness to believe in abstract ideas. True faith is trusting with an eager expectation in the promises of Jesus Christ. Over the next eight weeks, we'll examine different passages from the four Gospels where Jesus reveals something significant about what it means to increasingly become dependent upon and trusting of God. Whether you've been a believer for 50 years or five minutes, if you're in a season of, of struggle or a season of deep assurance, or maybe you're someone who's, who's trying to figure out if you know, a life following Christ is something that you are wanting to pursue, we hope that this series will help you better understand what it means to really trust and believe in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. If you would all uh, briefly here join me in prayer. God, as we begin uh, to fo- our, this, this summer and our focus on faith and and really learning from Scripture what and how Jesus taught us to believe, I pray that you'd reveal to each of us some way that we can grow uh, in our knowledge and in our love and in our trust of you. Lord, this day truly do open our eyes and hearts to understand uh, better what it means to have faith and better what it means to, you know, to, to grow in it and to display uh, who we are and our love for you from it. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be with each one of us in revealing those things that you have for us to learn today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our passage for today begins in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, where we find uh, Jesus having accepted an invitation to recline and dine at the home of a man named Simon. Now at this point, Jesus had been preaching and teaching throughout the Judean countryside for about a year, and in that time, he'd gained quite a reputation for himself. When he spoke, people wondered at the power of his words. When he taught, people were challenged to consider radical new ways of love. And when people came to him for help, they often left amazed, not just because of the sicknesses or the injuries for which they were healed, but also having received something that they didn't even know they could ask for, which was the forgiveness of their sins. But not everyone was amazed. For as much good as Jesus did, he also did some things that were making the Jewish authorities and theologians of his day nervous, things that made them uh, question and, and things that challenged their own understanding of their faith and their moral superiority. He, Jesus didn't keep a strict fast. He, uh, he, regarded, he regarded the Sabbath as something to be enjoyed rather than just strictly obeyed. And most troubling of all, he constantly befriended outcasts, tax-collecting swindlers, and well-known sinners. And Simon just couldn't figure Jesus out. So he did what any of us might do as we're trying to get to know somebody. He invited him over for dinner. In verse 36, we start and read, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So the meal that Jesus is invited to is really more of a banquet, and it would have been both a a formal and an open affair. All of the guests would have gathered around the table and reclined at their sides and with their feet extending out behind them. 
And while food was brought out and wine was replenished, the guests would ask questions of one another and engage in a lively and respectable debate. Because Simon was a Pharisee, all of, all of his guests would have most certainly been Jews that he believed to be, rit- to be ritually pure. You see, Pharisees were strict adherents to the laws and uh, the laws and the traditions of their faith, and they avoided contact with people they thought to be sinners, with anyone that they thought would categorize them as being religiously impure. Pharisees did not share with me- did not share meals with anyone they thought might jeopardize their own self-made righteousness before God. Everyone at the table would have been there only by Simon's invitation, but the whole event would have also been open to the public. Just about anyone would have been allowed to enter Simon's house and stand along the walls or stand in the hallways and try to listen into the conversation that was happening at the table, just as long as they never approached the table or got close to the guests. Many people would have jumped at this opportunity to pack the house, which is probably how a woman with such an infamous reputation managed to slip in uncontested. The passage immediately, immediately identifies this woman as a woman of the city and someone with an unquestionably sinful way of life. Now, we're not told the exact nature of her sin in the story, but the way the language is used and the way that the, these, these people react to what she's about to do here in a little bit uh, indicates to us that she was probably a prostitute. She's hardly the kind of person one would expect to find in the home of a man like Simon and definitely not someone that Simon's guest would have been accustomed to being seen with or let alone be touched. Which is why what happens next would have been quite strange and borderline scandalous for all involved. Returning to the text, we read that this woman hadn't shown up just to stand idly by. She had come with a purpose, something she felt compelled to do, and no amount of social propriety or cultural expectation was going to stop her from expressing what was in her heart. She walks in, picks Jesus out of a crowd as if he were far more friend than stranger, And then it says, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Do you remember being a little kid, like third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, and you were out with your parents at a grocery store or just out somewhere in public and you saw one of your teachers and you looked at them and your mind was just like, that's not where you're supposed to be. All right, well, well, take that awkward feeling and then combine it with whatever discomfort you have with public displays of affection, and then combine that with the feeling of just knowing you're seeing something that you're really not supposed to be seeing, and you might have approached about one-third just how, how absolutely bonkers this scene would have been to anyone not named Jesus that was sitting there at the table. Everyone watching would have felt a little bit scandalized. Remember, they all think that this woman's a prostitute, and she just waltzed into a house, walked right up to Jesus, let her hair down, and started touching his feet. Everyone would have been doing some rapid internal assessment, trying to interpret what they were seeing. And as they do that, two possible evaluations emerge. One is to see this woman's act, as awkward and unorthodox as it was, as an expression of profound love and humility and gratitude. She enters a place that society would really rather she not be found. As she approaches Jesus, she begins to weep, an outward proof of the jumble of emotions that are in her heart. She uses her own tears and hair to wash the feet of Jesus, a humbling act that would have been usually reserved for, sinners, or for servants or slaves. She kisses the feet of Jesus and then brings forth the alabaster jar. And this jar would have been beautiful and extremely carved and it would have been really, really expensive. And what's more, to use it, you had to break it open. You had to, you had to snap a neck off the jar in order to get to the perfume inside. And so to use it was to lose it. But this woman decided that this was something that she needed to do. She needed to use this, this ointment as in an expression of her love for Christ. 
one could choose to see and understand all of this strangeness as through the lens of compassion, or one could choose to see it as Simon did, as something terribly and outrageously and inappropriately wrong. Simon thought it was wrong for this woman to have entered his house, wrong for her sinner that she was to have touched one of his guests, wrong for her to be so intimately forward with Jesus. And while he was at it, he was pretty sure it was wrong for Jesus to be so okay with what was happening at his feet. He felt that Jesus should have been rebuking the sinful woman and casting her from the presence of those who had worked so hard to live their lives in constant purity and perfection. So Simon makes up his mind, this Jesus cannot possibly be a prophet. In verse 39 we read, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now in just a moment, we'll continue and see what Jesus has to say regarding this matter. But before we do, I'd like to invite you to consider, if you had been at this party, how might you have responded? Would your first inclination be to view this woman through her actions and reputation as a sinner? Or would you begin with compassion and wonder what might have changed in her life to bring forth such a display of love as this? When we judge people without truly getting to know them, when we assume upon their circumstances without wondering how God might be at work in their lives, we often end up revealing more about the hardness of our own heart and the blindness that we have toward our own sins. We do well to remember that God is not quick to judge us at our worst, but instead seeks to be patient and kind even when we sin against him. In Psalm 103, it says that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. If God sees fit to be merciful and gracious and patient and understanding, it would probably be a good idea for us to do the same. Jumping back into our story, just as Simon was confidently assuring himself that Jesus couldn't possibly be a prophet because a prophet would know the true character and identity of this woman, Jesus chimes in. In a wonderful twist of irony, uh, Simon was both absolutely right and terribly, terribly wrong. A prophet would know this woman's heart, and Jesus knew it to be truthfully forgiven and faithful and full of love. In very prophetic fashion, Jesus challenges the assumption that Simon had only begun to form in his mind. Returning to the text in verse 40, we read, And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, and he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he answered him and said, you have judged rightly. Jesus tells a quick story in order to establish a broad principle that he'll soon apply to the situation. He says that two people are in debt, and they are very, very in debt. A denarius was a single Roman coin that was usually the day's wage for a laborer in the first century. So one of the debtors is said to owe 50 denarii, or 50 days worth of pay, to this moneylender. The other debtor is in even worse shape, owing more than a year and a half's earnings. Both debts are crippling, both debts should have been paid, and both debts are shockingly and gracefully canceled. Now imagine having your student loans forgiven, or your mortgage torn up, or your uh, your, uh, car payments canceled. 
I'm willing to guess that you'd be extremely grateful, not just for the forgiveness, but to the forgiver as well. After realizing just how much a debt had been canceled, you'd feel joyously compelled to love the one responsible for that cancellation. The one who receives a great deal of forgiveness will in turn show a great deal of love to the forgiver. You get it, and I get it, and Simon, very begrudgingly, got it as well. Jesus affirms his correct answer and then reveals the reality of the woman's faith and the danger of Simon's unbelief. In verse 44, 44 we read, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But, who, but he who has forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who can even forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It turns out Simon had not invited Jesus with an entirely pure motive or extended him the kindnesses of clean feet and a kissed cheek that were the signs of respect at the time. It'd be like having somebody over to your house for dinner and just pointing them at the table where the food is without so much as saying hello. Simon had given Jesus the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately treatment, expecting this friend of sinners to explain himself and prove himself before earning Simon's trust. It also turns out, and this part is easily misunderstood, that the woman had arrived at the house not as a sinner, but as someone who had already met and been forgiven by Christ. See, Simon had it all wrong. This woman, like the forgiven debtor, was not a sinner to be dismissed, but a sister of faith overflowing with love for her Savior. When had she been forgiven? The passage leaves us with the assumption that it happened sometime before Jesus' arrival at the dinner. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we're occasionally introduced to people who, in one way or another, have already started their, their journey of faith. They've already interacted with Christ, or already started to, to believe in his gospel, and we're just not told when or how. But in verse 47, Jesus acknowledges that the woman does indeed have a sinful, sinful past, but he refuses to let her be defined by it. He brings Simon up to speed. This woman's sins are forgiven. Her faith, her trust in Christ and God's goodness to forgive sin has saved her. And she's now free to live in peace. Do you see what Jesus has done here? He's held up this woman who has a history of really troubling sin as someone who is an example by what she's done. Who knows what she's done. Who knows that she doesn't deserve the grace that she's received. And by faith responds to that grace with an incredible demonstration of love. As a Pharisee, Simon enjoyed a a reputation as a godly man. He had a theological education he, was, he had a respected and enviable career. He said all the right things. He was seen with all the right people. And he never missed a chance to practice or display his rigorous regimen of religious disciplines. He had all the sorts of things that human beings tend to admire about one another. The woman's reputation had been, at best, disreputable. Her law-breaking was public knowledge. Her way of life was the subject of public scorn. And no one had ever thought that she might become somebody who could be a servant of God. Yet it was the woman that Jesus praised as actually loving God much, while the pious and perfection-driven Pharisee was convicted of loving God little. What had the woman done that this Pharisee had failed to do? It's simply this. She believed that she desperately needed 
the forgiveness that Jesus had to offer. Simon, on the other hand, did not believe he needed so much beyond what his own self-righteousness could secure. He who has forgiven little loves little. This small sentence reveals to us the enormously important truth that every one of us needs to know as we seek to live a life of, of faith, that we will grow, that we, that we will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. We will love God to the, to the degree that which we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. Another way of saying it is that a person of faith can say from their heart, I love this much because I've been forgiven of so much. I am able to love God and love others, love my friends, and even love my enemies this much because I know that I have graciously been forgiven so very much. Let's unpack this idea a little bit and and look at what it means to believe the truth that we can love in response to the way that God has forgiven us. First, it means that our faith in God begins with forgiveness, not with self-righteousness. The starting point of our relationship with Christ is not when we've got it all together and not when we're the best version of ourselves. It's when we bring our most honest self, the good, the bad, and the ugly, before Christ and lay it down before him at the foot of his cross. When we can recognize that we are indeed sinful and that we need help and we can't fix it all on our own, that's when we know that God is working on our hearts and that he's already started to forgive us of those things that have kept, him, kept us away from his love. Simon had come before Jesus as a Pharisee with impeccable credentials. The woman had come as a prostitute with little more to show in her life than pain and struggle and sin. But only one of them had come, ready to admit before God that their way of life, apart from God, was not working out. The woman had been honest before the Lord of creation, had believed in his promises of forgiveness, and had thus been transformed into a person compelled to show great love for the one who forgives. If you're here today and and you feel like there might be something that you need to confess, if you feel like there's some sort of sin that you feel like you need forgiveness for, whether it's the first time or the 500th, I, I hope that you'll receive this well. It is okay to not be okay before God. It is always okay to go before God and not be okay. He he understands this. He gets this. He understood long before you did you did that your desperate need for the forgiveness that he has to offer and the eagerness that he has for you to receive it. And he's here to hold you up and dust you off and help you along your journey of faith. One of the sweetest, most encouraging promises in all of Scripture is the assurance that God will never fail to forgive those who seek him out for that gift. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our faith begins with forgiveness, not our self-made righteousness. Being able to say, I love this much because I've been forgiven so much, also means delighting in what God has already done and not demanding that he do more according to your liking. Consider for a moment the life of the woman in this passage. Jesus declares that she's been forgiven and praises the demonstration of love that she, that, that she gave before Simon. But the very fact that, that Jesus had to get everyone on board, that the, very Jesus, the fact that Jesus had to clue them all in, that she was forgiven, means that her, her circumstances in life really haven't changed all that much yet. People don't understand that she's been made into something new. And in fact, it's entirely possible that her life has become a little bit harder since being forgiven. Assuming that she didn't return to prostitution after receiving forgiveness, Jesus usually asks us to to change some things about our life once we're forgiven. 
Assuming that she didn't return to prostitution, she probably is looking for a new job. She might be looking for a new home. Uh, She might even be looking for a new community and, and to find people that are willing to accept her as forgiven. Things were still tough, but she wasn't looking to things or circumstances to find her joy. Her delight was truly in her forgiveness and her new relationship of following Christ. Sometimes I think we lose perspective on just everything God has done for us. And on occasion, I think we might even be guilty of loving God a little less when we're so focused on the things that haven't changed in our life. The new job we didn't get, or the relationship that fell apart, the sicknesses we suffer from, or even the fact that this world right now is a little bit of a scary place to live in. Such things as these are are hard to live with, but dwelling on what we don't have causes us to forget the incredible gift that we do have in the forgiveness of our sins. We can follow the example of this woman and keep our eyes and our hearts set on Christ himself. We can remember that sal- what salvation costs, that it didn't come free and it didn't come cheap, and that, God d- and that God died and then conquered death so that we could be reunited with him. You don't have to wait for everything to get better to have great faith. You can choose to cherish what God has already done and eagerly anticipate the things that he might do next. Delight in what God has already done and do not demand that he do more according to your liking. Finally, being able to say, I love this much because I've been forgiven so much also means that you're freed to live a life of extravagant love. Remember that alabaster jar that the woman had carried in to anoint Jesus at the party? Well, stuff like that cost around 300 denarii or or basically a year's worth of wages. And for a woman who is going through a lot of transition and a lot of change, that, that probably would have been a really great resource to have and to hold on to, but she decided that she wanted to spend it in such a way where she could express her love for Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we all need to go out and buy some expensive perfume and walk around town pouring it on people in order to demonstrate our love for them, but I am saying that as followers of Jesus Christ, we always have a reason to show love to others, and it's that we are always loved by our God. Let this sink in for a minute. As someone who has been forgiven and saved and loved by Christ, you will never again, for all eternity, live in a moment where you go unloved. For the rest of eternity, you will have God's love. Let that truth motivate you and inspire you and drive you to live a life of sharing extravagant love. Chances are all of you have some sort of idea of something that you might want to do for somebody else. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a gift or maybe it's, you know, getting involved with some organization in town or, or talking to somebody for the first time in a long time. You know, we, we all kind of make these lists of things we'd really like to do for people if time or if circumstances just allowed. My encouragement for you today is, is to consider just going for it, to, to do that thing that God has placed on your heart, to show people that love that God has encouraged you to show. One of the things that I was most excited about when, when coming back to Manhattan uh, a year and a half ago uh, was the opportunity to get involved with a group in town called Tandem. Now, Tandem has some really big, awesome dreams about uh, changing foster care, in, both in Kansas and, and, and really beyond. And, uh, and one of the ways that they choose to engage in that is through a mentoring program. And so you can sign up and get trained as a mentor and then get uh, paired with a teen who is getting ready to transition into being a young adult and, uh, and just spend time with them and care for them and give them somebody that's going to listen to them and, and provide for them a little guidance. And, and I heard about this mentoring program, and I was like, that's awesome. I want to do that. I want to be involved. But we moved here, and, and uh, you know, there were boxes to unpack, and there were new friends to make. And then, you know, there were things that came up, and there were perfect nights for watching baseball. And uh, before I knew it, a year had slipped by. 
And I still hadn't gotten involved. And if I was honest with myself, I was also a little nervous and a little scared because I didn't know if I really had what it takes to be a mentor. I didn't even really know what that means. But, uh, but God wouldn't let it go. And he kept pressing on my heart and he kept encouraging me to, to do this, to, to perform this act of love for others in response to how much he's forgiven me and strengthened me in my life. So a few weeks ago, I got trained as a tandem mentor. And uh, now every week for, for a year, I'm going to have the opportunity to hang out with an awesome young man. Uh, and last week, we got cheeseburgers and uh, bought cat food. And uh, yeah, right? Really, really high-level mentoring stuff here. Um, but just hung out and talk about life. And, and the things we do aren't extremely, you know, they're not extraordinary. But I'm, I'm hopeful that as the weeks go by, that this relationship that we're building will be meaningful to the both of us. And the time I give up is a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice in a really spoiled, soul-satisfying kind of way. And the anxiety and the insecurity that I feel about being a mentor is weakness in which God can work his strength in me. And the love that I share and, and, and is a reminder to me that I can care for others because Christ has first cared for me and given me new mercies and forgiveness every day and helps me get my feet on the ground and get out of bed. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are equipped by virtue of God's love for you and Christ's forgiveness of all your sins to love others and to love them well and to even love them extravagantly. This week, I encourage you to consider what act of love God might be laying on your heart to go out and do. Buy coffee for the person behind you in line and tell them how much you hope it brightens their day. Stop and have a conversation with the man or the woman that stands at the corner near a grocery store with the anything help sign and, and just see what's going on in their life. Offer to pray for them. And if you can, offer to do a little bit more. Send a letter to a friend who lives far away and, and let them know how much you miss them and how much you love them. Maybe some of those resonate with you or maybe God's calling you to do something completely different. Whatever it is, don't delay. You have been forgiven much so you can love much. Lean into that. Be a person of faith who can say from the heart, I love this much because I know that God has forgiven me of so much. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the truth that we are forgiven. And I thank you for the truth that that forgiveness frees us up into a life of, of simply loving others well. That by your love, we can always draw closer to you and draw closer to others and share with them what we have found to be true in you, that there is forgiveness from everything we have done and everything we ever will do. Lord, I pray that you use these words in this story um, and this example of this incredible woman's faith to inspire us to, to go boldly this week and engage in those acts of love that you've laid on our hearts. And most of all, Father, I pray that this encourages our faith, increases our faith, and calls us to a greater love for you as well. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.